Okay, we're in the Lent season. We started on Sunday a series, and I decided what we'd do is another series uh, now on Tuesday nights that have to do with Lent, and that's just a word that we have used over the years as we prepare for the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. On Sunday morning, we tend to take major events, although this Sunday we took a minor event, but I don't know if there's any such thing as a minor event when it comes to Jesus, but what we generally think of is he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then there's uh, the Last Supper, and then the Garden of Gethsemane, and then his arrest and trial, and the crucifixion. We consider those the major events. There is, however, a multitude of events that goes on a lot more than we usually think. And so what I'm going to do on Tuesday nights is pick out some of those ones that nobody ever talks about and bring them up center so that we can add that to our understanding of what Jesus went through and what it was like that last week. Uh, I was in a bookstore today, and there's a lot of books about nothing. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of books about nothing. And uh, I was thinking about that because uh, there's in a few chapters in the Bible, there is so much to, to bring us to understand what Christ did. And so uh, you could go on as, as John wrote. He said, if I, did it, if I wrote everything that Christ did, there's not enough books in the world. <laughs> And certainly that must have been true. And so as we pick out some of these events that seem to be usually skipped over during the Lent season, uh, Matthew 21 for our text today, Matthew 21. These are events that happened right in the last week of Christ's life. Some of the things he did and said. Matthew chapter 21. And we'll get the setting of it as we start. Matthew 21, verse 1. They drew nigh to Jerusalem, were come to Bethpage unto the Mount of Olives. Then sent Jesus two disciples, saying, Go into the village over against you. Straightway you shall find an ass tied in a colt with her loose, and bring him to me. And of course, he would ride those into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so that tells us where we are. The first day of the week on Palm Sunday, Jesus comes in, rides into Jerusalem to cheering crowds. Um, when he gets into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple. He will be there three days in a row. He'll be there Sunday and Monday and Tuesday uh, for sure. Those three days and a lot of things are going to happen in that temple. You understand that? Try to get it in your eye, mind what that place was like. It's 27 acres. It's a big place. 27 acres is a temple. And so obviously it's a lot of open ground. Uh, it's not all covered building, 27 acres, but there's a lot of covered buildings there. And it is, it is dug into Mount Zion. It's on a mountain called Mount Zion. And uh, 
what they did was they, they leveled it off and then put a series of stairs and leveled it off right into the rock of the mountain. And so these stairways made different levels. They would level off a large section. It would be walled in with gates. And so there's big area outside area, open courtyards uh, where the people will gather. And there'll be thousands of people there. It's Passover this week that we're talking about. Thousands of people come from all over the world, not just from Israel. People are there from Africa, from Rome, all over the world. They have come to be, it's one of the great events that they, people celebrate. And so there's thousands of people in this huge open area. And what happens normally is some rabbi will just stand over in this corner and start talking. And you go and you listen. If you like them, you listen more. The fact of the matter is, nobody liked much of the rabbis they had to say. But then comes Jesus, and, and they love what he's got to say. They can listen to him all day. And so he does. He talks a lot uh, in this time, these, two, these three days. And so uh, there's a challenge when he gets there. He comes in, and he uh, is in the temple. Uh, you know that he will drive out the money changers. He won't do that Sunday. He'll do that Monday. All right? And when we read some of the texts, it seems like he did it Sunday. But when you read more carefully, you'll see he came in Sunday, rode in amidst the cheering crowds, goes into the temple, stays for a while, and leaves. Monday comes in and clears the place out or drives out the money changers. Uh, and then... Uh, somewhere in that time, uh, probably the first day, he's going to be challenged. And so Matthew 21 and verse number 23. And when he was come to the temple, the chief priests, the elders, the people came unto him as he was teaching, said, By what authority does thou these things? Who gave thee this authority? You're teaching in our temple. What makes you think you can do that? <laughs> Who said? You could do that. Just stand there and teach in our temple. And Jesus is wonderful. I love what he does. He answered and said unto them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men? It's a brilliant, brilliant question. Jesus says, so John the Baptist, remember him? Yeah, remember him, yeah. He says, so uh, was he from God or was he just another man? And they reasoned within themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say unto us, why didn't you believe him? <laughs> and if we say of men, we fear the people for all hold John as a prophet. So you can understand now what's going on there. Uh, they're in a huge, Jesus has a huge crowd already. As soon as he arrives, the crowd come to listen to him. And they come up and say, what gives you the right to teach here? You're not a recognized rabbi under our authority. He says, okay, answer me one question. John the Baptist from heaven or just another guy? Well, we can't say. We can't say because they're afraid of people. So we have this 
a conflict there. There's a big crowd of people around Jesus, and they're all watching him. What are you going to say to Jesus? You're going to kick him out? They're watching. They know they're being watched. So yeah, we can't say. <clears throat> Verse 27, they answered Jesus and said, we cannot tell. And he said unto them, neither tell I you, but why, what authority I do these things. So you want to answer my question? I'm not answering yours. See you later. It's, it's, and it looks like conflict. Now, I'm one who always advises avoid conflict. I tell everybody that you avoid conflict. How about him? Is he avoiding conflict? Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't seem like it. Seems like he's stepping right into the conflict. And so we want to figure out what's in his mind and why he does what he does. And what he's going to do is tell a parable. And so we're going to have a parable, a story that he tells. And the parable you've heard often explained, it's a it's a earthly story with a heavenly meaning, which isn't a bad way to describe a parable. Jesus would take anything, anything you could think of, uh, a sheep, uh, a, a fig tree, uh, whatever you can think of, and he'd tell a story about it. And it's, it's not a true story, but it's meant to be a story with a meaning, all right? So it's not, I don't mean it's not truth, I mean it's not true, all right? It's a made-up story. And he was very, very good at that. And there had never been anybody as good as him at telling these kind of stories. But the point is, he tells a story, it has uh, beside it a... Uh, a spiritual principle. And so the, the story has a spiritual principle. And then it also has an application. So here's the basic principles of this parable. Now let's apply it and see where it applies. And Jesus' parables always are meant for all times, everybody, all right? He didn't just tell something to these people or that people. They were all meant for us, too. And so it has the spiritual principle that we're going to be watching for, but it also has an application. And he's about to uh, let them have it. You ready? <laughs> he's about to let them have it. And so let's see uh, what he's got in his mind and uh, how he behaves the way he did. All right. And so here we go. Let's start reading. We're reading at verse 33. Matthew 21, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it, built a tower. And let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. <clears throat> and when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. 
And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise unto them likewise. So <clears throat> they sends two em embassies, uh, two groups, and they go to gather, and for want of a better thing, rent. It's a parable of uh, collecting rent, really. They... they came and they said, no, you've grown the crop and everything, and so we come to get something for that. Uh, and so uh, they killed him. They stoned him, killed him, beat him, and everything else. And verse 37, but the last of all, he sent to them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. When the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do to these husbandmen? And they say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men. They answer his question, will let out his vineyard to other his husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. So uh, we get a pretty bad group of people here. But it starts, there is a considerable preparation. And we start with that. It's a considerable preparation. More than First meets the eye. First, uh, the, the owner plants vineyards. Right? He's got grapevines. And he's planting all the vineyards, getting them growing, making sure they grow. And then he goes the next step and he builds a hedge around vineyards. They, they put hedges, very thick bushes, whatever they could find. The purpose was to keep everything out. Critters, Animals. That's why in the in the Old Testament it says the little foxes get at the grapes because the little baby foxes could get through the hedge. See, but in most of the hedges, it's grown very thick and strong with plants and fence or whatever else they needed so that they could protect the crop, protect the grapes. All right. So they have not just planted the vineyard, but they have put up this hedge of protection. Around and he says, third, they build a wine press. So they put the tools right in the vineyard that are going to be needed to do the work, which is to squeeze the grapes and make uh, wine from them. And so that's already there. And then the fourth thing he says, we built a tower. And the tower, the purpose of a tower in a vineyard, because the vineyard's not just like your little garden in your backyard, you know. It's a big, big, huge thing. Go down along the lake, see those vineyards, they go on and on and on. Well, they put a tower in the vineyard. So you can climb up and you can watch. You pay attention and you watch. Keep an eye on the vineyard and make sure it's safe and make sure things are growing like they should. And so this has been considerable preparation has been put into this. And he says he made all the things that were necessary for a successful growing of a crop. And then he comes after the crop has grown and he wants something of the rent. 
something back for it, whether that will be uh, wine, whatever it is, he comes to be paid. He has given them the right to work there and do the work, and now he's coming to be paid. He's collecting the rent for what needs to be done. All right. Now, the immediate, and a lot of people consider this the only principle, is uh, this is has to do with Israel, right? And it's right then, at that moment. And so the preparation that was made was that God from Mount Sinai under Moses said, okay, here's how it's going to work. You're going to build a tabernacle. You're going to build an altar. You're going to make the Ark of the Covenant. You're going to make two separate entrances, holy of holies. There'll be an altar of sacrifice. And he lays it all out for them. And the purpose of it is that it should bring fruit. So he says, here's your vineyard, Israel. Here's what I set up for you. I got it all set up, and I expect you to uh, be fruitful. Do what you're supposed to do here and be fruitful. And I will put protection around you. There's going to be protection around you. I'm going to protect you as you do these things. And so... He says, I've got everything ready. Everything you need is there. So you can be fruitful. You can, everything, the altar is there. It's all there. You just follow all the instructions and you will be fruitful. And you will also need to watch. You'll need to watch. You got to watch. All right. Now, this is what people say, and I'm sure it certainly is an application. These are the Jews. Right? The Jews were given the temple. Right? Now, in the beginning, it was a tent, and they moved it wherever they went. Eventually, Solomon on Mount Zion would build this temple. Solomon's temple would be torn down by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but Herod would build it up again into this 27-acre fabulous uh, uh, facility, and so they've got a temple. They got a protection around it. It was built with a wall around it. That's not really the protection. It's God who's saying, uh, "You, you take what I give you, do what I ask you to do, and I'll watch out for you. I'll protect you. You got everything you need to do that. So I'll protect you." And so, uh, to prove your fruitfulness that you accomplished the purpose of this temple will send some people to check and of course the people that they sent in the beginning were the prophets the prophets came from the owner who was God all right and he sent prophets just like in Jesus story he sends some of his workers, uh, some of his servants. So they send the prophets. And the prophets, they would come to check on you, see how you're doing. And what do they do to the prophets? Well, 
They weren't very nice to the prophets. Elijah, one of the great prophets, came, and the queen, Jezebel, condemned them to die. He successfully called down fire from heaven, destroyed 400 prophets of Baal, and what he got for it was, tomorrow you die. That's what Elijah got for it, all right? So he came bringing God's word to check, and they said, tomorrow you die. And he did that, I'm afraid, to a lot of the prophets. Um, Jeremiah. Remember, they threw Jeremiah in a well, in a well that wasn't completely dry. It was all full of mud. They tossed him in a well, left him there for a while until somebody pulled him out. They put him in prison for a long time. He was in prison. Isaiah, the one you hear not too much of, they cut him in half. They sawed Isaiah in half. One of the silver tongues in the Bible, one of the great poets of the Bible, they sawed him in half. So God was sending his people to the Jews. And they said, nah, we're not listening. We're not going to pay attention. And of course, the last one was John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist came. And what did they do with him? They cut off his head put it in a platter, served it on a platter. He brought it down, here's his head on a platter. So there you go, there's his head. And so the prophets got treated very poorly. Very few of them escaped that kind of treatment. Only if they weren't in Israel. Daniel, who's in a foreign country, gets all kinds of good treatment. He's the prime minister. If they're in Israel, they get treated poorly. And so here's God setting up his vineyard. These are my people. I'm going to create everything you need, and I'm going to put it in your hands. Say, okay, now do what you should do with it. And so the prophets will come. They keep coming. They keep coming. As voices, they come. And then finally, we get the last messenger. And really, this parable, if it should be called correctly would be called the last messenger. Last messenger. No. When Jesus, the setting of this is that Jesus has come over the Mount of Olives down into the city and the people are shouting and screaming, Hosanna to the son of David and they hate it. And so they run in the back room, as they have been doing for about three weeks. Ever since he raised Lazarus, they've been meeting in the back rooms of the temple, saying, how are we going to kill Jesus? And their latest meeting, which they were probably in when he walked in to tell this story. And, you know, they're, they're in the back rooms and they're saying, what are you going to do? We've got to get rid of them. We've got to kill Jesus. And so, where is he? Well, he's right out in the courtyard talking. So let's get out there and stop him. What authority do you have to do that? He says, well, tell me about John the Baptist, the messenger just before me. Oh, well, we, we don't know. 
We don't know anything about him. Okay, so let's talk about a story. There was a vineyard. It's all been prepared. Everything's ready and it was put into somebody's hands and they misused everybody that came and finally the son came. He was the last messenger to come. He's the last one. He came in and what did they say? Let's kill him in verse 38. When the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let's kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. When Jesus came into the temple Monday of that week and made a whip and cleared the temple, when he finished it, he said something. You remember what he said? This is my father's house. And it was made to be a house of prayer. And you turned it into a den of thieves. So the parable is perfect because they're in a back room saying, let's kill Jesus. All of a sudden he's out in the courtyard and they come out to somehow stop him. They can't stop him. And so what he says is, uh, well, let's tell a story. Let's tell a story about this. And he tells this parable to them. And he says, so when the son came, they said, let's kill him. Let's kill him. And so we have, uh, besides a considerable uh, preparation, uh, we have an astounding, really an astounding crime that's committed. An astounding crime. We're going to kill the son. And he's going to, uh, and we're going to take over the inheritance. That's precisely what they said, actually. Couldn't be any more precise. Of course, Jesus knows. So he knows how to tell this story perfectly. And Jesus says, look, uh, in his story, they saw the heir. They said, we kill him, and it's all ours. We can seize it. That's exactly what they thought about the temple. He was coming into the temple, drawing all the crowd to himself, and they said, all we got to do is get rid of him, and we own this place. We got it. Matter of fact, we had it until he showed up. So if we can get rid of him, then we'll have the whole place to ourselves. So that's exactly what he says. And he gets to the end, he says, is there an appropriate punishment? An appropriate punishment. There's a punishment. What is it? What's the appropriate punishment? And so they, they didn't figure out yet he's talking about them. And they said, well, get rid of the guy. Toss him out on his ear. Get us a new, new someone to do this. We want somebody new to do this. And so uh, that would be the reasonable response. Now, we go a little bit farther into this and ask ourselves, uh, can we apply the parable of the rent collection to us? How does it apply to us? Right. Well, we are the church 
of Jesus Christ. He has planted us. We are his vineyard. He planted us so we'd produce fruit. All right. John 15, 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Or without me, what? You can do nothing. So the church was made to just be just like this. And God set the whole thing up. He set the church up. It was Jesus who founded the church. He set the church up. Why did he found it? Because the people who had it before, the Jews, turned on Jesus. And he says, so just like you said, the appropriate punishment is throw you out on your ear. And we will turn over this to another husband. The church is the other husband. We're part of that husband, all right? And he has given to us voices. We have had voices down through the years. Uh, And I think today, so that we can hear the call, there's more voices now than ever in all time in history. There's more voices now. You can find uh, Bibles anywhere. You understand there was a time where a lot of, in time in human history, nobody owned Bibles. You know? Nobody owned Bibles till we get up uh, past the Middle Ages and Gutenberg publishes, prints the first book. And what is it? It's a Bible. It's the first book. So now there's one. <laughs> there's one. And these, some of these guys that translated, like Tyndale, he says, I'm going to make it so that everybody can read the Bible. And the church said, no, you're not. We'll kill you. And they did. They killed the two of the uh, founders. Wycliffe was one who decided. He's Wycliffe went into the church in England, and he says, "I'm going to make it." He's told the priest up front in the church, "I'm going to make it so the guy behind a plow knows more than you do. I'm going to get a Bible in everybody's hand." And those people like that, we owe a tremendous debt to. You got all you want. You can have a hundred if you want. You can have any version, any kind of explanation. In no time in history has it been quite like it is today. You can turn on your radio, get 24 hours of preaching. Now, I didn't say it was all good. <laughs> I didn't say it was all good. But there's some really good guys on there. There's some very, very good people on there, uh, voices out there that are really worth listening to. I'm, I'm thrilled to listen to. There's many voices, and there's the media now. Uh, you go on some website, and you can read Martin Luther commentary, right? Go, bang, and you got Martin Luther in front of you. Go, bang, bang, bang. You got Joseph Parker. You say, who the world is he? One of the best commentators in the history of the world, and I can pull him up online and read him. In three minutes, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what is available now. So the voices have been sent to us and sent to us and sent to us and sent to us. So the expectation is what? That we would be fruitful. 
we would be fruitful. You've got all the equipment you need. You've been told to watch. Tower is great. You say, why ain't anybody put a tower in a vineyard? Oh, they're watching, keeping track. And we're to watch. We're supposed to watch. And it's a perfect story that Jesus tells. And so uh, we have all these voices that come to us, the expectation that we'd be fruitful. And, but the really one that counts is the last messenger. That's the real point of the parable. The last messenger comes, and it's Jesus. He's the last one. He's the one that we need to, because <clears throat> when he comes, he says, here I am. Right. It's me. And if you reject me, there's nothing else. There is nothing else. I'm the last one. And I come to bring you this, and there's nothing else but this. And so you think of what he did, uh, and I think... If we're going to think about Jesus as the last messenger, just think of it. He's born into our weakness. Right? Where do we find him born? In a stable, in a manger, in Bethlehem, wrapped in rags. He's born into our weakness. Uh, he's a carpenter. He does our labor. Does our work. He understands our labor. He took the low place. The last messenger took the low place. He didn't come to be important. He was the king of kings. That means every king in the history of the world, he was over each one. Superior in many ways to everyone. And he took a towel and washed dirty feet. Okay. He's remarkable. If we reject him, he weeps. If we wound him, he bleeds cleansing. That's remarkable. If we wound Jesus, he bleeds. What's bleeding? For my pardon, this I see, what? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we, we, we wound him. He bleeds out cleansing. We kill him. He redeems us by his death. We bury him and he rises from the dead so that you and I can be resurrected. Whatever, he goes on and on and on and on. Pouring out to us, pouring out to us all these things. It's an astounding crime then to get rid of him. You think what they did with Jesus, they murdered the only innocent man that ever lived. Right? Anybody here innocent? <laughs> I can't raise my hand because I'm not. Neither are you. We've all done 
things along life's road, some of the things that we can deeply regret we've done. Not him, not ever. He was the only truly innocent man ever was, and they murdered him. That's why it's such an astounding crime. Why would you kill him? Why would you kill him? It's an astounding crime. And we kill Jesus, is what they said back there. This will be ours. We can get rid of Jesus and we'll own this. We'll be in charge of this. This will be our world. And he said, this is my father's house. And they said, we're taking it. Like he said in the parable. All right. And so if we can, and today the church is in a place where what's being said, well, if we can get rid of religion and its restraints on us, Right? And we'll be free to decide our own fate. So what we would like to do is get rid of religion completely. Get rid of God completely. If we get rid of God, we can be our own God. Which comes right from Genesis chapter 3. Satan whispered in Eve's ear. He says, look, did God say you can't eat that tree? And yeah, he, he knows that the day you take a bite of that fruit, you'll be a god. You'll be in charge of your own fate. You'll be in charge of your own destiny. You can spin your own world off your own creative fingertips. Eat that fruit. And they did. We'd like to get rid of God and his restrictions. All right, so it's the first lie from Satan. And so <coughs> the astounding crime is that we don't need God. We're not going to have him. We're get rid of him. And so then the, the appropriate punishment, he says, is that we're going to get, it's an astounding crime to be sure, but the appropriate uh, punishment, uh, it has to be told that there is punishment for not being fruitful. And I tell people a lot of times, certain people come to me and say, did you ever hear this guy preach? Yeah, yeah, I did. And I always say this, I don't never want to be in his shoes, ever. And you can go to an awful lot of that stuff on television and so forth, and the entire gospel, which is Jesus Christ came and bled and died for us, that entire gospel is, hey, here's some miracle spring water. You can get rich. Those guys are going to pay dearly. I can't tell you what God's going to do. There's an appropriate punishment for taking the gospel, which is the love of God came down and suffered and died for us. That's the gospel that's supposed to be told. And you got people out there saying, yeah, but you can be rich too. You can make money. And some poor person gets on, I got a check for $20,000 in the mail. Oh, come on. What do you think God thinks of that? The gospel has been perverted into something as low and despicable as money. That's a very low and despicable thing in comparison to what? Saving of our souls. Right? So it's, it's a terrible thing. So Jesus goes on now to describe uh, 
what's going on. Verse 42. This is where he really zaps them. These guys, you understand, believed that they had all the answers, that they were the experts in Scripture. That's the main thing. We are the Pharisees and the scribes, lawyers. We are experts in the Bible. Nobody is as good as us. Watch this. Verse 42. Jesus said unto them, did you never read in the scriptures? I love it when he says that. He says, there's something you missed. Oh, you tremendously wise experts. Did you never read this in the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. That's a quote from Psalm 118. If you turned there, you'd see that verse there. Uh, uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. So there were some people who were building their own little vineyard, right? And they said, we're going to build this our way. And along came Jesus and he said, you don't fit in our plan. We got our own plan, the way we're going to build this. We got architectural plans all made and there's no room in our plan for you. So you're gone. You're not in our plan. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner or the cornerstone of a new building. The new building, of course, is the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the central part. Everything rests on him like a cornerstone. Everything leans, everything pushes. He holds the entire weight. He is the cornerstone of the new system. And he says, this is the Lord's doing. God did it. God said, I'm going to send somebody, the last messenger. Right? I'm going to send the last messenger to you. And when you reject him, you don't want him part of your building. I'm going to make him the head cornerstone of a new building. You're going to be that new building. Right? He'll be the head of that new building. And he says, it's marvelous in our eyes. We're happy to see God do it. Therefore, verse 43, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. He said to them right there in their eyes. He says, God's taken this away from you. You're going to lose it. Because... I'm here, and you rejected me. He's going to make me the cornerstone of the building, and you're going to be tossed out on your ear. You're going to be tossed out on your ear. Verse 44. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now, some people, when they get to Jesus, stumble. They're kind of blind. They have sort of a lack of knowledge. And so they're kind of wandering around in a daze. And there's a rock there. And they trip over it and stumble and fall. There are others who defy him. They defy him. You're not being part of my building. I'm going to have you in the building that is my life. That's what I put together. I'm not going to have you. And he says... 
to those people, I'm going to roll into place and crush them into a powder. That's the appropriate punishment. Ground into powder. <laughs> Ground into powder. Um, certainly, the Bible states it clearly. When he comes, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He's not going to mess around. He's going to come and bring punishment to the nations. And you think some little punk like Putin's going to matter when he shows up? Don't you think for one minute he's not going to use that rod of iron on them? He's going to make them sting from it. He said he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And it even says from his presence, heaven and earth will want to flee away. Because the first time he came, he came quietly and slipped into a manger. Next time he's coming with a sword. He's going to fix what's wrong. And so if you get desperate and you get fearful about the world condition, it's really not necessary. I'm sad for the world condition, those poor people over there in cult, in, uh, uh where they are in Ukraine. I'm sorry for them, but I understand something too, uh, that when he comes, he's gonna ground to powder anybody who has defied him. Now, just think about this for a minute. He just walked in and told a story, and it says, verse 45, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he spake of them. Clever they were that day. <laughs> oh, he laid it out and he rolled them right over, just smashed it to pieces. And they answered his question. They deserved to be punished and thrown out. He said, that's right. The stone that the builders rejected has become now the head of the corner. You Bible experts, don't you remember that? Psalm 118, where it says the stone the builders rejected. Well, they don't want to talk about that. What they understood in their mind. He's talking about us. He's talking about us. So isn't he kind of poking them? Isn't he kind of poking them? I always think that. I think to myself, uh, he's poking them. He's pushing them. But I don't think so. Think about it harder. Think about it harder. Um, when he comes as the last messenger, the last chance coming to us, I'm here, I'm here. We find he's very patient. He's patiently waiting He's patiently inviting us, offering us, uh, calling to us. He calls to us. And uh, he's very patient and he's waiting, all right, doing everything in his power. Because here's a fact he don't need you, he don't need me. 
He's a king of kings. He's a master of heaven. Everything is at his fingertips. What does he need with me? He don't need me. If I never lived, it wouldn't bother his glory. He's not up in heaven saying, Jeeper, if I don't get those people to eat Shelby, I don't know what'll happen. He's not saying that. His kingdom goes on. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, the order and establishment, he shall reign forever and ever. He doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me, but he wants you. All the difference in it, huh? He doesn't need you for his own glory, but he'd do everything in his power to call you to himself, to get you there, to invite you to come. He wants you to come. He wants you. The last messenger is the most powerful pleading messenger, and he's pleading and pleading. And so there he is in the temple <coughs> saying to them, didn't you read your scripture lesson? <laughs> Does he say it arrogantly? No. That's not him. It's not in it. So why did he say stone that the builders rejected is ahead of the corner? Because he has made considerable preparation for you and I. But there's an astounding crime that's been committed that re rejected Jesus. And so he is in the temple while they're in the back room planning his murder. He comes into the temple and he tells this story about a vineyard being carefully built and all the preparations that were made. And then he says, we put right in the vineyard a, a press, a wine press so that it would be easy for you to be fruitful. And so I'm asking for you to bear fruit for me. And I come to check on the fruit that you have. Now, if you reject that, I'm asking you, begging you, understand that there is an appropriate punishment. You cannot turn me away. So I am inviting you to accept it. So what do you think they did? Well, they went back. So we gotta get rid of him. And along about Tuesday night comes this one guy in there named Judas Iscariot. And he says, I'll I'll turn him over to you. If you want him, I'll turn him over to you. And we want him. Let's take him. All right. and so they do. So what was this? Was this a useless confrontation? No, 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 no. Did he accomplish what he set out to do? Yes, 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 yes. Because on the main governing arm in the tabernacle, there sit 
two men who you've heard of before, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the third wealthiest man in all of Jerusalem. They sit on this council. How'd he do with them? I think he did pretty good. Three days, or the day he died, they walked into Pontius Pilate, of all people, and said, we've taken that body. We're taking that body. He said, go ahead, I don't want it. And we're taking the body. And they buried him in loving care in Joseph's tomb and poured a huge amount of money into that burial by giving him the tomb and uh, burying him with a pile of spices. And they buried him in their own tomb. Joseph of Arimathea would go on to preach the gospel and people believe he went to England and preached the gospel. All right, Nicodemus would suffer at the hands of the other Jews until his daughter, the third richest man in Jerusalem, his daughter was a beggar in the streets. They took away everything he had. His daughter begged in the streets of Jerusalem. But when Jesus was telling his story, they got it. They got it. They say, well, two. No, 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 no. Turn to Acts chapter 6. It's a very overlooked verse, and it shouldn't be. Acts chapter 6. In verse 7. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. I don't know how many a great company it is, but I'm going to bet it's almost a majority of the priests came to believe in Jesus after it was all done. That's amazing. That's amazing. So as he's telling this story, you're saying, he's just poking at him. Yeah, in a good way. Until half the priest in that place, you understand there's hundreds of them? You understand there's hundreds of them? There's not, you know, two or ten or fifteen or twenty. There's hundreds of them by this time. Hundreds of priests come to believe in Jesus and they become part of the new building, don't they? They leave behind the old building, the old vineyard, and they become part of the new vineyard, and that's how they proceed. And so, you see, God, Jesus is very successful with this parable, all right? Uh, he is loved by God, his Father, and so he's sent to us as the best messenger and the last one. He's so kind and patient. Now he loves you and I, wants us to be fruitful, and wants us to bear fruit for him. All right? So a little bit of the Lent studies on sort of an obscure passage that we go over a lot. It tells us a lot about the heart of Jesus. As he's in the middle of a war zone with people that absolutely hate them, he's still 
inviting them, inviting them to come. I'm warning you, he says, there is an appropriate punishment. And when this stone rolls on top of you, you'll be ground to pieces. The punishment has to be made clear. But if you want to be on my side, remember that the same one who became the head cornerstone, they said it's marvelous in our eyes to see what Jesus did. And so it's a wonderful experience to see Jesus just in one little story as he actually reaches into the priesthood and hooks them, hooks them. He just didn't reel them in yet. He will. Holy Spirit will come and they'll reel the priesthood in too. And among those, the most educated rabbi of the time, the Apostle Paul, right? as he reeled him in. <laughs> He's quite successful when he comes as the last messenger. All right, next week we'll do something else obscure and you never heard of it before. Thank you.